and uh, what I do. Uh, my, uh, my blog, is, is, as mentioned, is about helping churches care for their pastors. Uh, one of the things I'm really concerned with is helping churches invest in their pastor's joy uh, because it's good for the whole church. Uh, it's what, what is a, a blessing for the church, and I root that in, in Hebrews 13, 17. But uh, usually when I go to a church, I'll, I'll speak about something like that, but you have Roy Yankee here, and uh, he can do that for you uh, anytime you want. And so you can, can, uh, you can get some training from him. And this morning I thought uh, we would uh, visit a passage of Scripture that the Lord's really been using to speak to me uh, really over this last year. It's something I've been meditating on. Uh, quite a bit. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to have them open to uh, Mark chapter 10. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 46 through uh, 52. Before I come to God's Word, will you pray with me? Father God, I just ask that in our time together here this morning as we look into your Word, that your Holy Spirit would use the words that you've given me to say, would use the receptiveness of the hearts of people here to transform us to be more like Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit has for us. We ask that through this, Christ would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. These two girls up on the screen are precious, aren't they? In 2003, I was invited uh, to be part of a ministry team that went to India. We were there to preach and teach 10 times in 11 days. It was an exhausting trip. And there's so many amazing things that happen on the, the trip. But right in the middle of this trip, they gave us a day off. A day where we didn't have any teaching, any preaching, any ministry of any kind. We could just take the day and they took us to the beach on the Bay of Bengal. And uh, during the middle of that day, I just took some time to, to reflect and use the beauty of the, the location to, to just walk off by myself and pray. And I had a little uh, thing of homemade granola that my dad had sent with me on the trip. And so I was munching on my granola and walking along the beach. And the amazing thing is they, these beautiful sandy beaches, and there wasn't a single person swimming. It was 80 degrees in February. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, it was 80 degrees, but not one person was, was out in the, in the water. And so I'm, I'm enjoying this pristine beach, and these two little girls started following me. They lived in a house, if you could call it that. It was more like a tarp on four poles right on the beach. That was their home. Uh, and they started following me as I'm walking and praying, and so I started praying for them. Uh, we didn't speak the same language, so I, I never learned their names, wasn't able to interact with them at all. Uh, but they were very curious about me. And uh, I gave them a little bit of my granola, and they popped it in their mouth, and their eyes got really big. I imagine afterwards that they probably never tasted anything like this before. Uh, so I gave them the rest of my bag which may not have been a smart thing to do. I can't imagine how their digestive systems handled a whole, whole bag of granola for the first time. But then they, they ran off. They went in, uh, and found their, their little tent, their house, and brought that granola to their families. And it was, for me, it was a really precious time. Uh, they were beautiful and precious to me. Less than a year later, on 
December 26, 2004, a tsunami hit that side of India and wiped out every village all along the coast. This village would have been one of them. I, I don't know if these girls and their family were there at the time. I tried to find out. I called a friend of mine uh, who is in touch with the mission there in India and asked him, is there any way of finding out if that family survived? Because I'd been praying for these girls. They, they just touched my heart in some deep way. I was told that no, the government wouldn't even know uh, if anything happened to them. In fact, the government there would rather not know. You see, these, these are part of the group of people in India who are the poorest of the poor. Sometimes they're, they're called the untouchables. In this case, my friend said, uh, the government would rather not even look at them. They're the unseen ones. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that deals with a person that is kind of an unseen person. The, the, the category of people that, that we tend to put on the margins of society and say, I, I don't want to look at them. I don't want to know that they're even there. We're going to look at a story about a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And I want you, as, as we look at this story, to see if you can, and I'll try and help you as we go through this, but see if you can identify with Bartimaeus. See if you can put yourself in his place, in his location, kind of even in his skin, if you could. What would it be like to be him? Let's read uh, Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart. Get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus is, has become one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. As I've meditated on this, this passage and I find myself wondering what it would be like to be him, to cry out for mercy and to have Jesus respond, to see again uh, maybe for the first time, or, or to recover sight, uh, it would be an incredible, incredible experience. But there are so many things going on in this passage that, that are very easy to miss if we just kind of do a quick reading. And so we want to slow down and look closely. First, we have Bartimaeus. Who is he? What is he like? He's, we're told he's a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. Now, there's some debate over what his name 
means. It might just mean son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. Um, but there's also some, some uh, people, some, some scholars who, who would say the word Timaeus sounds very much like the, uh, the Arabic words right now. It means filth. His name might have been son of filth. In other words, it's not so much his, his given name as a uh, derogatory term that the people around might have used. Oh, that's just a son of filth to dismiss him and disregard him. Treat him as less. He's a beggar and he's blind at a time where people saw your, your station in life, your, your wealth or your poverty as a sign of blessing or cursing from God. If you were blind, people assumed that you must have done something to deserve it. If you remember the story in John uh, chapter 9, uh, Jesus and his disciples come across a blind man and his disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man should be born blind? You see, there, there was always this, this assumption that if you were blind, if you were a beggar, you must have done something to deserve it. So not only was he disregarded by society, but they assumed that he must have been a horrible or evil person. Now, back in John 9, 2, Jesus said about the blind man, or the man who had been born blind, he, he didn't do anything to deserve it. He was blind so that God's glory could be revealed through him. And so we've learned to recognize that, that someone's poverty, their ability or disability, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with blessing or cursing from God. But this man's in a place where his society would have seen him as less than. They would have seen him as, as evil. And they would have done everything they could to disregard him, to not look his way. So how does somebody like this, this kind of unseen beggar, become a follower of Jesus? Because it, as we read through the story at the very end, it tells us that after he was healed, he followed Jesus on the way. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. He goes from begging in the streets to following Jesus the week before uh, the triumphal entry. Bartimaeus starts by crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This prayer of Bartimaeus has become one of the most used and most famous prayers throughout the centuries of the church. It's now called the Jesus Prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus recognizes this person, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, is the Messiah. He uses a messianic term, son of David, a term that is reserved for the one who would come with authority, the one who is, is God's chosen one. And he uses that term very carefully and he cries out for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this isn't the normal cry you would hear from a beggar in a Middle Eastern society. Kenneth Bailey was a, a missionary and, and missionary's kid. He grew up in the Middle East in several different communities. He says, in the Middle East, beggars don't cry out, have mercy or, or give alms or anything like that. What they say is, give to God. They would cry out in the streets, give to God. 
as people walk by. What they're really saying is, is my needs are beside the point, Kenneth Bailey says. He says, I'm offering you a golden opportunity to fulfill your obligations to God. And so a beggar was seen as a necessary part of society. Somebody who gave the average person an opportunity to demonstrate their righteousness in front of the rest of the community by giving to this beggar. So normally, the beggars would say, give to God. But this man isn't saying that. He's saying, have mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, how did the crowd respond to him? Did you catch that in the passage we were reading? They told him to be quiet. Shut up, you! Jesus doesn't have time for you. This big, famous teacher is coming through town, and here's this blind beggar that nobody wants to see. The people are ashamed of him, and he should be ashamed of himself. Have nothing to do with Jesus, and yet he's crying out. They tell him to be quiet, and what does he do? He cries out all the more. I love Bartimaeus. This guy's got some guts. He's not afraid for Jesus to see the shame of his condition. He's not afraid to, to be known as this blind beggar, the one called son of filth. He's crying out all the more, have mercy on me. I think at this point it's important for us to pause and ask, are, are we like Bartimaeus? Are we hiding from Jesus in some way and, and not crying out? Or are we willing to come to Jesus with our guilt, with our shame, with maybe the pain that we're experiencing that we don't want others to see? Are we willing to, to let that all be out in the open as we cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me? When I was a kid, uh, I wasn't one of the big uh, popular kids or the most athletic kids. And, and I, quite honestly, middle school experience was, was the worst time of my life. I was bullied right up to the point when I hit the growth spurt. I was the first kid in my class to, to grow, had the deep voice and got taller. And all of a sudden, everybody stopped bullying me. I realized the bigger I got, the less they picked on me, which was great until everybody else hit their growth spurts, and then it started all over again. I learned in that time, that time of, of being excluded and, and being pushed on the margins, that when, when you're in that situation, it's easier if you just hide, if nobody takes notice of you. If you remain unseen, life will be more peaceful. Sometimes in our guilt, in our shame, in our pain, we do the same things, don't we? We just say, if, if nobody notices, this might be a little easier. If I don't have to let people see who I really am, life will be simpler. Bartimaeus isn't that type of person, though. He recognizes that in, in his shame, in his, the pain of his situation, Jesus has something to offer. He has a life of transformation that's available. There's something 
completely new that is, is available to him, and it's in Jesus, and Jesus is walking by right now. Here's the moment. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If we want to see people like Jesus does, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be willing to be seen by Jesus as we are. We have to be willing to come to him with our shame, with our pain, with our guilt, and lay it all out and say, Jesus, this is me. And it takes great courage to do that. And sometimes we have to do that in the, the company of believers, and it takes even more courage to let the people in our church know, hey, I'm struggling. This is the shame I deal with day in and day out. But the only way to be healed, the only path towards transformation is to allow Jesus and his people to see us as we are. Otherwise, we remain blind beggars sitting on the side of the road all of our lives, never seeing the beauty of the sunrise. We have to be seen by Jesus. Now, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus already sees. In one sense, this being seen by Jesus isn't for his benefit. It's for ours. It's, it's a chance to be honest with ourselves about who we are. Have you ever heard the, the word confession? Do you practice confession of sin? The word confession means to say the same thing. It means to, to agree with God about our sin. God already knows our sins. He already knows our guilt, our shame, our pain. Jesus knows these things about us. In fact, Psalm 139 tells us he knows the words that are on our lips before we even speak them. He knows our hearts. He knows us better than, than we know ourselves. And so coming to Jesus with our shame and our pain, we're not telling him anything new. But we're admitting the truth to ourselves and to him. Jesus hears this man crying out and says, call him to me. And, and this is my favorite part of the passage. As, as Jesus says, call him. Look at Bartimaeus' response. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. What would it be like to see a blind man jumping to his feet and practically running through the crowd to Jesus? It's an amazing thing to think. He, he is so eager, so uh, overwhelmed and overjoyed by the fact that Jesus is calling him, that he jumps up. And then Jesus asks him a strange question. What do you want me to do for you? As I'm reading through the passage, every time I come to that question, I kind of think, Jesus, isn't it obvious? I, I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't this be plain before you, Jesus, to, to know exactly what this man wants? Maybe Jesus wanted some clarification. Do you want me to give you money or do you want me to heal you? But I, I think there's more going on. Jesus' question signals to us that Bartimaeus' life is about to change radically. Back to Kenneth Bailey, what he says is, is that a beggar in this situation, someone who's been blind, if he's been blind from birth, would have no skills. He would have no trade, and his family probably would have disowned him by this point. 
And so for this man to gain his sight would mean he is losing his only way of having any sort of income. And so Jesus asking him, what do you want me to do for you? He's asking, are you willing to take the risk that a transformed life would mean? Are you willing to pay the price of losing the relative comfort of your old life? To enter into something that you maybe don't even know what it's going to be like. Uh, Jesus invites the man, what do you want me to do for you? What if Jesus is asking us that question this morning? If you're in Bartimaeus' place, and you're coming to Jesus with all the pain, the shame, the guilt all the, the truth about you. And he asks you, what, what do you want me to do for you this morning? How would you respond? In your, your heart of hearts, I'm not talking about the initial response that you might have. Some of us uh, might respond, you know, Jesus, I'd, I'd really like a new car or a million dollars that make my life a whole lot we might have these, these initial kind of gut reaction responses, some of them good, some of them bad, but at the core, the, the, the deepest, most honest part of who you are. And Jesus asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? What's the cry of your heart this morning? Transformation, deep heart transformation, the kind that makes us like Christ, only happens when we come openly and honestly into Christ's presence and we're willing to speak aloud the answer to this question. From Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus' response would be, I'd, I'd like to regain my sight. I want to be able to see I don't know if you've ever seen the videos that are on YouTube about uh, uh, blind, colorblind people who are receiving these special glasses that they can put on. And for the first time in their lives, they begin to see the world as it is in color. They're amazing videos. One of my favorites is this kind of big, tough, gruff guy. His whole family gathers around, and they've got all sorts of different colorful things in the room. There's balloons and flowers, and uh, they're in a park, so there's trees and uh, all sorts of, of different things. And this guy opens his gift for his birthday, and he pulls out this pair of glasses, and he goes, what are these? And he just said, put them on. And he puts them on, and he about falls down. He's so amazed by what he sees. Now, he's just seeing color for the first time. He's been able to see all of his life. Now imagine what Bartimaeus is experiencing. He's blind, without sight of any kind. And Jesus says to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And Bartimaeus is able to see. And what does he see? He sees Jesus. In fact, Bartimaeus is able to see everything around him, but he sees Jesus so intently that we're told he follows him in the way, which means he becomes a disciple of Jesus. 
The way is kind of a shorthand New Testament way of describing those who were followers of Jesus. They weren't called Christians early on. Did you know that? Christian was originally a derogatory term. Well, those are those Christ people, those Christ ones. The early church uh, identified themselves as followers of the way. And so Bartimaeus, he sees for the first time, he sees Jesus, the one who has healed him, and he says, I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And Bartimaeus' way is the same way as Jesus. He sees and realizes that Jesus is really all he wants. Jesus is really all he needs. He's willing to do the same thing that the early disciples did when Jesus said, come follow me. They left behind their occupations immediately. They left behind their families immediately. Left everything in their life and said, I will follow him. At one point, the disciples said, we've given up everything to follow you. When Jesus calls us to come, and asks us, what do you want me to do for you? There may be a cost involved in that answer. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's costly. And he warned people, don't, don't follow me unless, unless you first considered the cost. And he told a story about a man building a tower. And he considers first whether or not he's got, got the funds to finish the tower. When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? There may be a cost involved in answering that question. But as we speak the truth, as we speak our heart's deepest desire, and I'm sure each one of us here would answer this question a little differently. But as we speak that, there's also the possibility of the greatest blessing we have ever known. The cost and the blessing. God told the Israelites, I put before you now a choice, blessing or cursing, life or death. This is the way that Jesus comes to us. What do you want me to do for you? Transformation, what we sometimes call discipleship, isn't just filling our minds with doctrine and stuff about the Bible. It's being shaped into the image of Christ. It only happens when we allow ourselves to be seen by Jesus. When we're willing to truly, openly, and honestly enter His presence in the company of His people. When we share from our deepest heart, by faith, what is really going on. And we're willing to pay the cost of following him in his way. When we do that, we begin to see things in a new way. When we're really transformed from the inside out, we begin to see people the way Jesus sees people. We don't see two little girls on the side of the ocean that nobody wants to see. We see two people made in the image of God, who are precious and beautiful and loved by God. I pray for those two girls all the time. 
I'm sure they're young women now if they survived the tsunami. But I still, all the time, pray the Lord's grace and blessing in their lives. Because Christ has given me eyes to see who they really are. In the deepest part of your heart, the part ruled by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? What is your most honest, shameless, faith-filled response? Will you pray with me? Father God, we come to you. So often, Lord, we're told that we, we have to give up our desires to come to you, but at the same time, you ask us by your Holy Spirit, and you fill us with your Holy Spirit to answer this question, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, help us to have the courage to be truthful about where we're at. To honestly answer. And to, by faith, trust. Trust in the transformation that you bring. Regardless of the cost. Help us to see the great blessing of being shaped and molded into your image. We pray that being in your presence, speaking the bold, honest, shameless truth, we would be shaped to be like you. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.